You know, I spent, I spent a little bit of time with these verses over the years. Uh, I've, actually, this is probably the first Sunday I've preached in a while where I chose these verses specifically rather than going off the, uh, the lectionary. And that's because with everything that's been going on in the world, I thought these were something we should look at. Uh, because it's really interesting to me where our blind spots tend to be in our faith and we're looking at scripture. I mean, I got to be honest, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this pass both of these passages preached about and whenever they come up, it's really always the same things that just kind of seem to quietly slip under the radar that go unmentioned and forgotten about. These these two passages here, they're incredibly well known, they're concise, they're eminently quotable Bible passages. It's the sort of thing you might find on a devotional card or, or, or scribbled and inscribed on the back of a Bible that's given to some unsuspecting teenager as a confirmation present. You know, that's the sort of thing you might expect to see these passages in. And together, these two passages, they kind of read like a secret recipe for peace on earth. You know, you, the first thing that comes is, reading the room, knowing when to plant and when to harvest, when to weep and when to laugh, when to mourn, when to dance. And then from Mark, we get that profound, spiritual, deep understanding that the purest form of our faith is when the most destitute and vulnerable unquestioningly give the last little bit that they have to wealthy religious elites who don't even realize or care that they were in the building in the first place. Because that is what happened here, right? I mean, I'm not the only one who sees that. When we read the story in Mark, it's our default instinct to hear the voice of Jesus as praising the poor widow, uplifting the gift of her poverty, extolling it over the gifts of all the others given out of their abundance. It's our instinct to want to spin this story on its head and make it about the poor widow's excessive individual personal faith rather than what the story is actually written to be about which is the story of a very angry Jesus highlighting the great and terrible faithlessness of a community of wealth, power, and privilege treating the house of the Lord as their own personal social playground at the expense of those most in need. Consider that just before he sat down across from the temple treasury in verse 41, in the verses just before that, He had stood in the temple itself, right among the wealthy and powerful scribes who administered and operated that same temple. And he said directly of them in their midst, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Two verses before that. In this moment, in this context, Jesus sounds divisive. 
it sounds as though Jesus is the one who's tearing the community apart here, raising up rebellion and disunity where there ought to be peace and fellowship. It sounds as though Jesus is speaking out in favor of, oh, I don't know, bringing the powerful down from their thrones and lifting up the lowly. It sounds like he's talking about filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. It kind of sounds like he's being exactly who his mom said he was going to be all those years ago. But how do we square this image of an angry, protesting Jesus with our long-running understanding of Jesus as the Prince of Peace? It's actually pretty simple. We have to face up to the fact that our understanding of what peace is has always been shaped by the most powerful among us for whom peace is just a world where they can do whatever they like. Um, I gotta be honest, I can't tell you how many times in other churches I've served that I've been told by like the wealthy members of the congregation, the powerful, the, the elite Christians of the community, that this kind of talk against the wealthy and powerful is, is disunity, that it's rebellion against God's established authority, uh, that it's a slap in the face to Jesus himself. I can't tell you how many people I've heard that have come up to me and said, oh, justice is injustice. It's, it's terrible, of course, but you can't bring a community together by alienating the rich and the powerful. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've been told that if everyone could just stop making such a fuss, stop fighting, then we could just live in peace, unity, and happiness. I can't tell you how many times I have been told that the secret to God's peace is working with the wealthy, the powerful, the corrupt, the unjust, rather than against them. And at times, especially when things are at their worst, I, I start to wonder if they might be right. You know, I mean, y'all know me. I'm known for being something of a firebrand, if I'm being honest. Maybe, it, maybe it's true that the, the bulk of our problems are caused by, by people like me who would argue the point rather than just agree to disagree. Maybe... It really is true that if we just give our blind support to our leaders, yield to those in power, drop our two coins in the treasury without complaint, maybe then we could be unified by our faith. Maybe we could finally have peace in our communities if we just stopped fighting. But then in in one terrifying moment, I look out at the world and I see the cost of that kind of peace. I see that cost being paid in the bodies of teachers and children in Texas. Beautiful hearts, minds, full of God's potential, lying dead, because it was easier for us in America to just sit back and let people agree to disagree about guns, rather than hold leaders accountable for every drop of blood unjustly spilled, every drop of it an insult against God that should never once have been allowed to pass. I see this cost, the cost of this peace being paid in cities on fire across Ukraine and Syria and any number of other places around the world where refugees are freeing from oppression and genocide because we just couldn't be bothered to speak up against leaders who profit from war and see genocide as a growth market for the expansion of personal profit. See this cost being paid in the Philippines, where corruption spreads like wildfire because all of us in nations around the world 
found it so much more convenient to just kick back and watch the next YouTube video rather than hold companies and leaders accountable for profiting off the spread of disinformation. I see the cost being paid locally as churches, governments, corporations, and other community organizations start to crumble under the weight of corruption as people bend to leaders who spin honeyed words about shared greatness and unending prosperity while making backroom deals that benefit only a select privileged few. Religious leaders preaching of a faith that gives us everything we want for ourselves but asking nothing of us in return. And we pay that cost all the time in our daily lives. And in exchange for that cost, we get peace. Or do we? My friends, when we are talking about this social condition where everyone is happily getting along, where no one's upset or complaining, where the rich and poor sit down together in harmony and no one feels the need to raise a voice in anger or protest or say anything about injustice, that thing we're talking about isn't actually peace. It's quiet. In Alabama, in 1957, when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to town, now this is a preacher of the gospel known for bringing with him agitation to the status quo, he comes to town and this is what he says of his God-given calling to bring peace. He says, I come not to bring this old peace, which is merely the absence of tension. I come to bring a positive peace, which is the presence of justice in the kingdom of God. Peace is not merely the absence of something, but it is the presence of something. Think about that for a minute, if you will. True peace. God's peace does not come when we subtract tension. But when we add justice, true peace, God's peace does not come when we avoid confrontation and allow corruption to flourish, but when we stand up to oppression and fight back against injustice. True peace, God's peace does not come from silenced voices and the, the cool chill of spirits so desperate to avoid offending or disrupting those who might be powerful enough to complain. Peace is forged in the fire of confrontation. It's dug out from beneath oppression and injustice, and it's expressed in every cry ever shouted against those who profit from the suffering of others. Peace is not something that is amicably negotiated between insiders. It's shouted from across the temple courtyard at a system built on injustice masquerading as faithfulness and kindness. Just a minute ago, I talked about the blind spot we have when it comes to this passage in Mark. But I didn't mention where the blind spot is when it comes to the passage in Ecclesiastes. And this one, as somebody spoiled in advance, is I think perhaps the more important one for us to, to confront. Now we find this blind spot when we embrace the beginning and the end of verse 8. And when we quietly gloss over those two lines in the middle, we tend to treat this scriptural verse as kind of like a contraction, like the word don't or can't or won't. Only we take the phrase a time to love and then quietly slip in an apostrophe so we can skip over everything else before landing on a time for peace. 
Because we don't want to hear the words that tell us there is a time for hate and a time for war. In our heart of hearts, we like to see ourselves as good, righteous, loving, kind, and above all, quietly peaceful Christians. And if that's how we imagine ourselves, then it becomes all but impossible for us to think about a time where a good, Christ-following, Bible-believing Christian can stand up and say, with the fullness of God's love and mercy on their side, that there is a time for fire, for burning down the house, and the time is now. But it's quickly starting to look like we're leaving the comfort of an era where we can embrace this image of a, of a placid Jesus sitting cross-legged on a hilltop somewhere, far removed from us in space and time, dispensing wisdom with a passive spirit and a placid grin. Our world today seems to be one where we need to embrace the Jesus who stood in the midst of the temple and spoke fierce condemnation against people who were profiting off the suffering of others. And then he stepped back, and with a broader lens, he exposed the whole system of exploitation and oppression that these powerful people had built to profit only themselves while selling it to the masses as faith. So, I think this is where I want to leave us all thinking this week. Uh, the two questions that I have for us to meditate on, assuming my mouse actually works. There we go. Where are the places in your life now that God might be calling you to stop avoiding confrontation and bring the fire? Places where confrontation isn't probably something you want, but something that God's justice needs. And beyond that, what are some of the places where you've witnessed systems of oppression, kind of like that temple treasury in Mark, that convince us that it's more faithful to cooperate than to stand up to an unjust system? <laughs>